we've been working through one of the New Testament letters, the epistle of Peter, the first epistle of Peter. And we're going to camp on two verses this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2. They are 11 and 12. Let me read them for us. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When my wife and I head out on a journey, perhaps to a new place we've never been, we'll often do a little research. We want to know what to expect. Nobody really likes getting caught off guard. How is the journey of the Christian life for you? What did you expect when you started? That's the big question I want to ask this morning from this text. This is a text that helps you know what to expect as you walk with Jesus in this life. Let's ask two, answer two questions. First, what are the facts? And secondly, how should you act on the facts? Two simple questions. What to expect in the Christian journey? Nobody likes to get caught off guard. So first, what are the facts? I'll tease out several that are in these verses. First, we're told that we are aliens and strangers or sojourners and exiles. Peter's continuing what he did in the previous verses, and that is identifying the New Testament people of God with the same terms God calls his Old Testament people Israel. So he's connecting the experience of Christians in the New Testament with that of Israel when they sojourned in the wilderness and when they were exiles in Babylon. Translated, just like Israel in those two situations, both in the wilderness and in exile, had, were in a land that they didn't belong to, so are Christians. Because we belong to Jesus, we don't belong to this world. When you enter into a relationship, a living relationship with Jesus, you have a new relationship to this world and this life. This is not all that we hope for. Isaac Watts wrote a hymn in which he said, There is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. Infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain. We're not there yet. And the point of being a sojourner or in, or a, um, in exile is don't lose sight of your destiny. We hope for more than this. In fact, Peter would go on and write in a second epistle, 2 Peter 3.13, but according to God's promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness reigns. That's the place we want to be the longer we journey with Jesus in this life. That's the place Jesus inaugurates in this way, described in uh, Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
So no wonder in chapter one, Peter exhorts us in verse 13 to set our hope of that, set our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That tells you that the more seriously and intentionally and continually you relish the coming king, the less you will demand on this earth of trying to experience heaven. Loving Jesus, expecting his return, saves us from this inbred desire to try to create our own little heaven on this earth. So we're asking, what can you expect in the Christian life? Here are some facts that tease out an answer to the question. Here's the second fact. You're at war with sin. Just like exiles and sojourners have a certain relationship to the land, they don't belong to it. Those who belong to Jesus have a new relationship to sin. When you're born again by the Spirit, Peter alludes to this in chapter 1, verse 3, you become a new person inside. You're no longer the person you were born into this world as. So really, there's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are born, what you might call in solidarity or a union with Adam, who are, because of Adam's fall, spiritually dead, blind, with no appetite for God, and at peace with sin and correspondingly at war with God, you're either at peace with sin and at war with God, or if you know Jesus because of the spoils of Jesus Christ for you, you are at peace with God and correspondingly at war with sin. In your soul, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter alluded to that a little bit earlier in chapter 2. So it's on the strength of being a new creation that Peter says, as you understand yourself and look at yourself and get this new identity, one with Jesus Christ, he says in verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. That verb is present tense. It's an ongoing, continuous, relentless war. Christian, you will fight sin to the day you die. And that verb abstain means to keep away from, to avoid. So if Janice and I are going out into the woods on a walk and we see poison ivy, we avoid it. We stay away from it. We want to have nothing to do with it. That's the spirit of what Peter is saying. And he says what's at war within you are passions. We're going to come to this word again later in the outline. But for now, I want you to know it's a very important Greek word. It's the Greek word epithemia. Themia means desire. When you put epi in it, in front of that word as a prefix, that functions to intensify the meaning of the word. So an epithemia is not just a desire, it's an over-desire, an inordinate desire. Wanting a good thing that God gives you as the only thing. Taking God's good gifts and irrespective of God, making them the thing that you live for. Now we'll come back to that idea uh, in a little bit in the outline. The point here is we're at war with sin. And God wanted his people to be tipped off to this fact right from the beginning. So you see in Genesis 4, 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. 
in a sense, that image sets the big question as you read the rest of the Bible. How do I become a person that sin doesn't rule over? How do I become a person that resists this hideous, tenacious, pernicious thing called sin? That's the question. You get into Romans 6. Paul talks and teases out the implications of being one with Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 12, this is the second imperative, only the second imperative in Romans. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, here's my mortal body, to make you obey its passions. If I'm at peace with God through Jesus Christ, that means I have a new relationship to sin, and sin wants to reign through various passions. Jamie read earlier from Galatians 5, Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, hence the war. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Thank God there's a presence in you greater than the flesh, the Spirit of God. This is a battle that can be accomplished by the power of the Spirit. Another sermon for another day. Peter, excuse me, Paul says, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So you say, Lord, why do I keep failing? Why do I not do that that I want to do? Why do I do that that I, that I shouldn't be doing? The answer is there's a war inside of you and sin is getting the better of you. When Paul reflects on this battle in his own soul in Romans chapter 7. He says, I'm doing things I don't want to do. I'm not doing things I want to do. And he steps back and he says, what's going on in my soul? Romans 7, 17. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that indwells me. He has this, he's not excusing himself, but he has this perspective on his soul that indwelt by the spirit of Christ, sin is now at war with him. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. No wonder James, the brother of Jesus, says, we all stumble in many ways. James 4.1, he raises the question, what causes? What's the cause of the quarrels? And what causes fights among you? You have relational discord. What's the cause? He gets to the root of it. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? My relationships are faltering. I ought to stop and look in my soul at what I'm craving, what I'm desiring, what I'm demanding that may be leading to relational breakdown around me. David reflected this way at the end of Psalm 19. Who can discern his errors? Well, he sort of answered that question in the whole psalm. It's about the word of God. This is impossible apart from the word of God. And he begs, declare me innocent of hidden faults, things I don't even see. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. What a great prayer. That's a prayer God's going to answer for you. He doesn't want sin to have dominion over you. We're going to see next week from Psalm 119, this plead, direct my footsteps according to your word. Let not sin rule me. That is the prayer of a healthy person. That is a prayer of a sojourner. That's a prayer of a person who understands they belong to Jesus by his purchase on the cross. They have new life by the power of his resurrection. And there is therefore correspondingly a war going on in their soul. Here's the third fact. God tells you about sin because he loves you. Peter begins verse 11 with this word, beloved. That's not only expressing his love for his audience, 
but by extension, he knows that they are the objects of God's love. God loves you. He wants the best for you. He takes no delight seeing sin win its war in the hearts of his kids. He hates sin. He hates watching sin destroy his children. It's not just an affront to him. It's not just odious in the sight. It is. But he grieves when sin keeps us from being all that he's called us to be and liberated us to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Paul writes in Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and through sin, death. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Thank God. God has intervened through Jesus Christ to usher in a reign of life. A reign of life. Romans 5.17, we reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Death reigns through Adam. Christ has come to undo that reign. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The promise for the struggling saint that wherever you see sin in your life, because we belong to Jesus, there's always more grace than our sin. This is a battle. It's a serious battle. It's a lifelong battle, but it's a battle we're fighting assured of the outcome because Jesus has promised to take us as his own and to save us and to once and for all deliver us. Here's the point. Jesus has set you free. He's brought you out of the bondage to sin. He's paid dearly for this through his cross. He wants you to enjoy it. So stop and ask yourself for a second. If I was a sin-defeated believer, what would that look like in my life? One way, there's a lot of ways to answer the question. One way is to look at uh, your, uh, the answer to that question with respect to others. When sin's getting the better of you, there's almost always relational strife and a lack of love. How did Peter begin the chapter? 1 Peter 2.1. Put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all the things that, that cause our relationships to devolve into craziness. A sin-defeated believer has a distinct um, relationship with God. They, they lose their spiritual appetites. The writer of Hebrews has to say, look, I've got things to say to you, but you become dull of hearing. Unchecked sin clogs up our spiritual ears with wax, and we lose our ability to hear God, to long for God, to desire God, to want God more than ourselves, to want to know what he thinks as greater than what we think. Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians as still being fleshly. And a sin-defeated believer, you see it not only in the relationship with others, with God, but also with himself. Our pride tends to get out of control. That's what sin wants to do, express itself in self-sufficiency, self-promotion, self-indulgence, self-defensiveness. Look for these markers in your life. See, when God puts you in challenging situations, when do these things tend to rise up? That's because there's a war within you. The net loss here is the image of God. God is looking for the glory of his image to be reflected in those Christ has purchased for himself. God is looking to re see reflected on the earth something of the glory of his righteousness in us. When we're giving in and not fighting this battle, that image is marred, it's smeared, and God is not glorified. He deserves 
the glory of our righteousness. Second question to ask, take a little longer on this one. This is so what you know what to expect as a sojourner in this life with Jesus. How should you act on these facts? Peter indicates two things. On the one hand, he says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. I'm going to come back to that in a subsequent sermon. The other thing Peter says is, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We're going to take the rest of our time and tease out some of the implications of that. This seems to be a two-sided coin. It seems to be saying, on the one hand, you need to fortify your soul. On the other, weaken sin's allurement, sin's enticement, sin's power. That's how you live as a sojourner, walking in joy and peace and faithfulness and fruitfulness with Jesus Christ. So let's look first at weakening sin's allure. It's going to take a while to work through these points, but as my dear wife says, what else do we have to do? Here's the premise. Here's the premise. You cannot defeat an enemy you don't understand. You must know your foe in order to defeat it or it will defeat you. That's the reason I'm going to take a lot of time to explain sin. What to expect? How's it work? We don't like to be taken off guard. Next week, I'm going to show you the portrait of the person who is struggling with sin by grace from Psalm 119. I encourage you all week long, read through Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Psalter. It's breathtaking in its beauty. But in the spirit of Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. In that spirit, Let's understand how sin seeks to quench in you the springs of life. So in answer to the question, what does sin do? Here are a number of responses based on biblical teaching. What does sin do? Sin infects your thinking. It distorts the mind. Romans 8, 5 to 8, those who live according to the flesh... Set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those according, live according to the Spirit. Uh, set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. That's the thing you want in your life. Life. Peace. Joy. Pleasure. It's all about where you set your mind. For that mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's a terrifying thing. That's an awful thing. It should send shudders down our spines. Hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's about the worst thing that could be said about me. Unable to please God. It's about where you set your mind. Another verse there from Ephesians 4. Check that out on your own. I want to simply make this point for you. You don't have to believe everything you tell yourself. Just because you think it doesn't make it true. Well, Mike, what does make things I think true? They conform to the Word of God. 
So Paul gives us this wonderful test in Ephesians 4, verse 8. I call it the Ephesians 4 test. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatsoever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's any excellent or anything praiseworthy, think about these things. Put your mind down on these things. Let all your thoughts be taken through that grid. That's what's worthy to believe. And the place you know, know where those things are is in Holy Scripture. That's why you have to have a daily living relationship with the Word of God. The Word of God constantly challenging your thinking, conforming your thinking to the way God has wired you, the world, and himself. What else does sin do? It seeks to enslave your will. Proverbs 5, 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast by the cords of his sin. Sin never says enough. When I give in to a sin, sin thinks, I'm going to get that easier the next time, the next time, the next time. Sin becomes a rope around your soul that becomes very difficult to break. Jesus put it this way, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Who's your master? <laughs> are there things I have to have that are my master? 2 Peter 2.19, who, for whatever overcomes a person to that he's enslaved, if there's anything in my life I say I have to have it, you know, obviously apart from God. If there's something you have to have, it's your master, you're its slave. Jesus came to set us free from those things that as masters end up destroying us and our relationships. How does sin work? It's blind to the fact that it blinds. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it's the way of death. Sin crafts in your thinking, this is where I find humanity. This is where I find happiness. This is how to find satisfaction, security, significance. And it's perfectly reasonable to me. In the end, it's death. Sin hides the fact from you that if you craft your own Identity based on your own thoughts. You're, you're sealing your own destruction. Sin hides that from you. It's horrible. After Jesus healed a blind man, the Pharisees began to conflict with him. Some of the Pharisees near Jesus heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The first step to understanding spirituality the way you know you see things spiritually is to say, I'm blind, I don't get it, I need God to open my eyes. I need Jesus to show me the truth. How does sin work? It deceives and works covertly. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And if you're reading that and you come to that, you need to stop and say what? Well, that's me. How am I deceived? How is my heart sick? How would I understand my heart? God gives us his word. And the spirit working with the word shows us our hearts, shows us our sin, shows us what God made them to be, shows us himself. Thank God in a world full of sin. Thank God where sin in its ugliness remains. We have truth, we have light, we have help in God's word by his spirit. Hebrews 3, 12, take care, brothers, 
lest there should be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's still called today. Why? Why do we need this mutual exhortation? That none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So left to myself, I ought to assume, all things being equal, sin is working a deceptive hardening in my heart that it's not letting me be aware of. So I need people in my life pointing things out to me to help me, to rescue me from myself. I'm often my own worst enemy. How does sin work? It's unsurprising to realize then from the Bible that sin would have you complacently not take it seriously. This is the picture given in Proverbs 132. The simple are killed by their turning away. The complacency of fools destroys them. This is the person who realized, you know, there might be something wrong within me, but I can be chill about it. I can relax. Sin, not a big deal. Not good, beloved. How does sin work? It distorts your view of reality. It's a wonderful evangelical commentator named Alec Motier, and he's written a book on the Old Testament called Look to the Rock. In his portion dealing with the fall, Adam and Eve's fall, he, he shows so wisely some of the fallout, the impact of what sin did to Adam and Eve. And he makes this observation. He says their moral perceptions are clouded so that self-centered values overrule God-centered values. Now, because of that fall, we are all born with that proclivity in our hearts. Left to ourselves, self-centered values dominate us. In Christ, we are liberated and freed now with a new mind, a new heart by the Holy Spirit to have God-centered values to dominate us. But he reflects on the result of that. He says, they acknowledge their sin but they fail to come to grips with the seriousness of it. They ought to beg God to be banished from his presence. Do you see what he's saying? Sin was doing a number already on Adam and Eve such that when God came seeking Adam and Eve, if they understood the seriousness of sin, they should have said, stay away, you're holy, we're not, kick us out of here. So sin creates this comfort level with God that is false, that is fictional, that's a lie. What, how does sin work? It magnifies others' sins above our own. Jesus used the provocative image in Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but don't notice the log that's in your own? Sin has this uncanny ability to go, go to the class where we learn what's wrong with other people and we keep skipping the class that shows us what's wrong with us. We have logs in our eyes. We have sin and somehow enables us to look past to find faults with other people. How does sin work? It minimizes consequences. And who would ever gladly choose misery and death? You get this picture in Proverbs. The wicked don't know over what they stumble. The adulterous woman, her feet go down to death. She does not know it. No one would choose, in their right mind, personal ruin and destruction, yet sin deceives us, minimizes the consequences of our choices, takes us down that track until God rescues us. How does sin work? It creates a phantom righteousness in our thinking, 
hiding from us our true unrighteousness. Proverbs 30, 12. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed from their filthiness. If you were seeing with spiritual 2020 vision, if the word of God was informing your appraisal of yourself, what would you see? Your filthiness. This is what the word of God exposes. But sin would have me focus on how good I am. It's a phantom. It's a righteousness. It's a vanity. I'm not really good. It creates that sense while hiding the true filth of my sin. How does sin work? It foolishly tries to eclipse God. This is probably the worst thing of all. The worst thing of all. We live in a theocentric world. God made it. He's at the center of it. All meaning is in relation to God. All human life must be defined in terms of who God is. And so sin has a very distinct theological impact. <laughs> Psalm 10:4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. God is the most beautiful person in the universe. And sin refuses to acknowledge the obvious that he is. Psalm 97.4, and they say, the Lord doesn't see, the God of Jacob doesn't perceive. I can get away with stuff. God doesn't, he's like too far away. He's on another planet. He doesn't have eyes that can perceive this stupid stuff that I'm doing. What a, what a bunch of nonsense. Psalm 50, 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You speak, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done, and I've been silent. Sometimes God doesn't immediately judge sin. I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Sin has us fashion God after our own liking, in our own image. We create a false God. That's the one we want, the one that we can deal with. <laughs> and if we have any sense of relationship to the God that is there, we want to take him on our terms. When you see God clearly, you'll confess this with David, Psalm 51.3. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There's a man who gets God is at the center of all reality. God made me for himself. God has standards. I'm to reflect those standards and enjoy God according to those standards. And when I don't, that's sin. And God should judge that sin. Just a couple more. Sin finds delight in something. James 1.14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Epithemia. Inordinate desire. Wanting something too much. Wanting a good thing irrespective of God. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The writer of Hebrews gives this breathtaking illustration of Moses, how he, he was not that person. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He had a choice between him. Passing pleasures of sin? No. Ill treatment with the people of God? Yes. What was motivating him? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
sin makes desires inordinate or over-desires. This is the point we've been making about the word epiphemia. Again, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, different word, are at war within you? You desire, there's epithemia, you desire because you don't have. So you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. A lot could be said about that, beloved, but is it any surprise then that sin always produces death? You can see there the verse from Romans. And one last point here, and then we'll finish on a more upbeat note. When unchecked sin, uh, when sin is unchecked, left unchecked, uh, what it produces is violence and utter corruption. In world history, there was a time, it appears right before the flood, that God took his hand of restraint, his hand of common grace off the earth, and what ensued was this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. That tells me that if I look back on my life, particularly a time when I didn't know Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, that I was not filled with violence and that every thought was not continually wickedness, there's only one reason for that. The grace of God. God in mercy knowing and loving me and constraining the evil that was resident in my heart from being full-blown, from blossoming into worse, the only reason I wouldn't be a person filled with violence and sin is the grace of God, God loving me every before I knew and loved him. So that's kind of a flyover on some of the things the Bible says about sin. You cannot fight an enemy you don't understand. I hope that helps you know that when Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war within you, something of what you can expect from the nature of indwelling sin. Let's close with this. We not only are to put sin off, we're to fortify our souls with grace. One picture of that is Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's the journey of faith. Sin clings closely. We have lots of weights weighing us down. How do we run it? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We look to a Jesus who was crucified for all of our sins. We look to a Jesus who put our interests ahead of his own. We look to a Jesus who took sin so seriously that he was willing to have it nailed into his body and bear the wrath of God for our sins into his body. Seeing Jesus is seeing the beauty of holiness. Looking to Jesus is seeing the man or woman God created you to be. Seeing Jesus is seeing God. Seeing Jesus is seeing God in the flesh, full of grace and truth. You're seeing the true lover of your soul. And here's the principle. You become what you look at. We want to get our eyes off our sin onto something much more beautiful. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, looking at Christ, are being transformed from, into the same image. God is making us like Jesus as we look at him from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. One hymn writer, Ora Ruin, put it this way. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Good question. See, indwelling sin is presenting its passions as beautiful, as desirable. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Captivated by Christ's beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him, now unrivaled king. I want to close with one more quote. I learned it from a Christian woman named Julian of Norwich. I was taught about her writings from Joanna Lamb and Divalet this semester. Joanna picks wonderful uh, books in our Christian heritage to read. There was a striking uh, statement at the end of Julian's book, and I want to read it for you because I think it captures how we need to end this sermon. When we, were f- when we are fallen because of frailty or blindness, then our gracious Lord inspires us, stirs us, and calls us. And then he wills that we see our wretchedness and humbly let it be acknowledged. But he does not wish us to remain thus. Nor does he will that we busy ourselves greatly about accusing ourselves. Nor does he will that we be full of misery about ourselves, for he wills that we quickly attend to him. For he stands all alone and waits for us, constantly sorrowing and mourning until we come, and hastens to take us to himself. For we are his joy and his delight, and he is our cure and our life. Let's pray. To whom shall we go, Lord Jesus? You have the words of life. You've made us your joy. Amazing. And at what cost? Your horrific cross. Lord, you bid us to come. So we flee to the only one who can help us with our sin. Not just its penalty, which you did, you paid for our sins, but its power. (laughs) You have defeated it by the power of making us new by the Holy Spirit. So give us grace in this incessant warfare with indwelling sin to see more and more victory that brings you all the glory and us closer to you and experiencing your love more and more in your precious name. Amen.